I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The following program is a podcastwarm.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzy. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Yay! This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The part of the And rock and roll. The spell you run now. Can be broken by Chris Jericho, and it's Friday. It's Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday. The remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. Let's go for a ride. All my friends have a low rider A low rider is a real goer. Come and take a trip. Come on, take a trip. Come on, take a trip with me. Come on, take a trip. Come on, take a trip. Come on, take a trip and see here. <laughs> Loves it, man. That's a good time. A lowrider there with you here on a Friday. How in the hell are you, Jerrica Holics? Got UFO expert Peter Robbins here today. And boy, what you uh, got some creepy stories to tell. Before we get into alien sightings and abductions with Peter, I want to say thanks to all of you who've subscribed to Talk to Jericho on iTunes. Thanks to those of you who are leaving the ratings and comments. I appreciate all the support. If you're digging the show, tell your friends about it. Tell your friends about us. 
Double thanks to St. Louis Ram Jam, who gave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Also left this comment, I just became a listener. I love the Fozzie episode so much. I got up, drove down to my local store, and bought Do You Want to Start a War on site? Yeah, I can't keep bumping this album in the car. Can't get enough of Talk is Jericho. Thank you so much, St. Louis Ram Jam. That means a lot. Thank you for buying Do You Want to Start a War, which uh, debuted on the charts. Billboard Top 200 at number 54. Amazing, our highest chart position ever. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to St. Louis Ramjam. Also, shout outs to Sing It Pro, Buckeye Fan138, and Ivan Axel. All Talk is Jericho subscribers. I wouldn't be doing this without all of you guys listening every week. So, thank you again for subscribing. Thanks for downloading at podcastone.com. Once again, thanks for checking out. Do you want to start a war? If you did, Number 54 in the charts. I mean, man, I never expected it to, uh, to go that high. You know, uh, and, and the most important thing was that we did 60% more in our first week than we did on the last record, Sin and Bones. And that's due to the incredible uh, response that we've gotten from all of our fans. Uh, all of you, a lot of you who checked out the, uh, the record on the songs that I've played on Talk is Jericho. You know I've played Lights Go Out quite a bit. One Crazy Anarchist, Do You Want to Start a War? I was playing SOS. Let's do another song today. Uh, I was taking a poll of the favorite songs of the record, and one of the top favorites on the record is um, a song called Tonight. It's kind of a, a heavy power pop type tune, uh, like a cheap trick on, on steroids type thing, with the background vocals from Michael Starr, Talk is Jericho alumni. If you haven't listened to the Steel Panther, uh, Talk is Jericho, super, super funny. One of my favorites. If you haven't heard Do You Want to Start a War, the album yet, what are you waiting for? I'll give you another chance to check out another song right now. This is Tonight, Fozzie, featuring Michael Starr. Crank it up!
What do you think, man? What a fun song that is. That's a good tune to put the top down and just drive around town uh, in your convertible, listen to some rock and roll. Hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, hit me up on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho and let me know what you thought of the last couple episodes. The Steel Panther episode was great. I uh, loved the uh, Zack Ryder episode. Very good. The Fozzie episode. Christian and Snooks. Matthias Jabs, if you like rock and roll and if you like the Scorpions, go check out Matthias' uh, episode. Really, really cool. I haven't. Uh, I didn't hear it because I recorded it like four or five months ago and forgotten what we had talked about. So getting a chance to hear it again was great. Scorpion, super underrated. I was just listening to Worldwide Live today and watching the US Festival back in '83 on YouTube. If you get a chance to go check it out, uh, Van Halen was the band that got all of the uh, pomp and circumstance that day. Got all the ballyhoo, but the Scorpions were the band that stole the show. If you go back and watch that set, they went nuts. They were just insane. It was so cool to watch them just just dominate the stage and put on a great show. Reminded me a lot of Fozzie, as a matter of fact. And we are playing, if you're in Syracuse, at K-Rockathon on Saturday. This Saturday, we have a, a big festival show. And then uh, that's on August 2nd. August 3rd, head over to San Antonio for a WWE live event. I believe it's Jericho versus Wyatt. Then we got Raw on Monday in Austin, Texas. And then we head over to Australia for Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth is Jericho. Come check it out if you are around. Um, lots of talk about TNA, about how they might possibly lose their TV deal or they're still in negotiations to re-sign. I have to say that I don't want TNA to lose their, t- their TV deal. Uh, I think it's very important to have a, an alternative in any type of business, especially in the wrestling business. I think that the WWE has a tendency to get a little bit lazy when uh, there isn't somebody behind them. And it's not that TNA is directly behind them. It's not like the days of the wrestling war when it was Nitro and Raw and there really was a a race. Obviously, TNA will never um, take over WWE. That's just because WWE is such a machine. You know, I remember when when Hulk Hogan was signing with TNA in in New York City, I believe even at Madison Square Garden. I asked Vince about it that day, and I said, does this bother you? And he said, hey, listen, even taking myself out of the equation – he said, TNA can sign whoever they want. You can't, you can't beat the WWE. It's such a machine. And this has nothing to do with me, Vince McMahon. He said, you can take uh, you know, any, any type of company, any type of star, and the WWE machine will eat them up and chew them out and spit them out. And he's basically right. I mean, you can't compete with such a, a monstrous, a monstrous, momentous you know, corporation like the WWE as far as trying to take them over. But you can still have a good secondary alternative. And when TNA first started, I bought their pay-per-views every week when their model was they do a weekly pay-per-view, even though it was insane. It was actually quite funny because Raven would always call me, and I uh, would always wait until Raven was on TV to call him back because I knew he wouldn't be there. <laughs> I knew he wouldn't be able to answer his phone. So I used to wait for the live TNA shows were on and then call Raven. Hey, man, I called you back. Too bad you couldn't answer the phone. And then he'd call me back as soon as he was done with his match and I wouldn't answer the phone. But I've been a fan ever since those early days. I remember watching AJ Styles and the Flying Elvises. Remember those, the Flying Elvises? That's talking about the early days of TNA. <laughs> you know, um, I still uh, was a huge Samoa Joe fan. Um, I think Sonny Siaki was in there. Ken Shamrock was their first champion. There was a lot of uh, early times with with TNA. And then, you know, once TNA, they they got a deal on on Fox Sports, I believe it is, and then finally ended up getting a deal on Spike TV. Does about a million people, give or take a a few hundred thousand every week. Uh, It seems like it'd be, you know, uh, it's one of the highest rated shows on Spike, but for whatever reason, they haven't renewed TNA yet, and they're still wondering if they're going to. 
I mean, I think TNA at a certain point in time had a real good niche for themselves when, when they had were doing the X Division uh, and those matches that they had in that X Division with Christopher Daniels and Frankie Kazarian and, you know, Loki was in there and uh, Petey Williams, uh, Eric Young. There was, there was a lot of really good high flyers. Jeff Hardy, I remember Hector Garza was there for a while, God bless his soul. We're putting on these amazingly cool, uh, uh, you know, Chris Saban, Alex Shelley, putting on these cool X Division matches that were really standing out, kind of the junior heavyweight matches that were always the highlight of the show and then for a while the, their knockout division with gail kim and awesome kong was in there um they were putting on just these amazing matches every week that were must season then tna kind of fell into a trap that wcw fell into instead of trying to be on their own they started becoming wwe light and i think that's when they kind of started losing their their way and losing uh, a little bit of their direction so unfortunately, here we are now where, where there's a chance that TNA won't have their deal renewed by Spike TV. Rumors are one of, there's two reasons why. Uh, one is that they don't think that the product is cost efficient for the amount they pay for it. And two, I guess TNA lied to them about Vince Russo being involved with the company. And um, it was a really weird situation where I guess TNA told Spike TV that Russo wasn't in the company anymore. Then Russo sent an email that was supposed to go to TNA employees, but went into a, a, a wrestling dirt site that made it over to Spike TV. And there's a big kind of a lack of trust issue. And my thing is, you know, Vince Russo was the guy who brought me into the WWE and he was my biggest fan right off the bat. But why would they lie to Spike TV about Vince Russo working there? Spike doesn't like Vince. Vince is just one guy. It's like, let him go. See you later, bud. You know, we got to keep this company afloat and to keep them on kind of under the table sounds like a kind of a weird idea. And, you know, I just hope that TNA survives. I want to see them survive. I love Bully Ray and he's been on the show before. Uh, great performer. I think he's killing it there right now. One of the highlights of the show. And they've had so many big time names that have been on that, uh, you know, from Flair to Sting to Hogan to Bischoff and they can't, you know, RV, RVD, R Van Dam, uh, you know, Booker T. They brought in so many of those type of guys and none of them really uh, moved the needle in the direction of, of making the show bigger and, and, and drawing them more money. So I don't know. It just seems like if they could just focus in on who they have and just really, um, don't worry about what WWE is doing. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Just worry about TNA that they can make it more of a viable product and make it stand out and make it uh, make it worth its while. Which, like I said, I watch the show from time to time. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. But the last thing I want is for them to go out of business. So Spike TV, if you're listening, resign TNA. We 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 can't lose them. Without an alternative, uh, it makes everybody complacent and everybody lazy. Plus, it's bad for the fans if there's only one place to work, and bad for the boys. It's bad for me, you know. I I want TNA to exist because you never know. I mean, Vince McMahon could could fire me tomorrow and say I never want to see you again and I never want to work with you again, Jericho. And then what am I going to do uh, when I want to wrestle? If I want to wrestle, so uh, we hope TNA uh, succeeds in their um, uh, renewing of the contract. We hope Spike TV does that for them. And I hope all my brothers uh, in TNA and sisters, some that I know, some that I don't, will still have a job and a paycheck. So good luck to TNA uh, and good luck to all of you to not get completely creeped out by Peter Robbins. We're talking all things UFO and there's some scary things that are upcoming. Uh, so stick around. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas. See? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone 
is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is Jericho. On the line right now, one of the world's most renowned UFO experts, Peter Robbins, is here. How you doing, sir? Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I got to ask you. I mean, it, it's really, uh, it's really great to talk to you. I was hooked up uh, to, uh, with um, with you through Jeff Belanger, who's another yeah. uh, very, very educated paranormal investigator. And I asked him. I said, "Listen, I want to talk about UFOs." Who should I get? And the first name he said was, you got to talk to Peter Robbins. Huh. How do you become a UFO expert? I mean, what, a, what an amazing job. Talk about a cool job to have. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the word expert because the fact is, um, Chris, when we talk about this subject, we are talking about the unknown. And after mm-hmm. more than 30 years of studying this subject, what I can say with absolute certainty is I'm not really sure what's going on, except that we human beings do not seem to be alone in the universe, mm-hmm. and that uh, there may be multiple explanations for this phenomena that we generally refer to as UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, um, early on, I was very fortunate to have some terrific mentors um, who helped me develop my skills as an investigator. Uh, as I developed as a writer and um, began to explore different areas of, of, of this fascinating subject. Well, yeah, you mentioned that you had some interesting mentors. I know that one of them was, was Bud Hopkins, uh, right. one of the, the pioneers in the field of, of alien abductions. Yes. What did you learn working with him for 20 years, and what exactly does it mean that he pioneered the field in alien abduction? He studied them first? Well, that's a great question. Um, Bud Hopkins, as as some of your listeners certainly know, uh, is regarded as sort of the father of modern scientific studies around this one area within what we'll call ufology mm-hmm. of UFO-related abductions, a very troubling, fascinating, and often distorted area of study. Bud became interested in this subject in the mid-1970s or so, mm-hmm. and published his first book on the subject in 1981 called Missing Time, which not only was uh, well-received as a very important book on the subject, but added a term to the American lexicon to the English language, Missing Time. We lost Bud to cancer about two and a half years ago at the age of 80. But to your question, 
I was fortunate enough to um, make friends with Bud in the mid-70s, within a year or so, of both of our becoming interested in this subject uh, as painters, as New York-based artists, and our friendship grew around these subjects. Mm -hmm. But after the publication of his first book, his life as a public person in these studies uh, kind of exploded up until about 1980 or so, the UFO research community tended to shy away from this subject. I think the reason for it was overall because it's sort of loopy enough to present yourself to the world as a Mm grown-up who is interested in flying saucers and (laughs) the possibility of aliens. It just sounds kind of goofy to an average person. It makes you sound crazy. Yeah. And there is a tremendous ridicule factor that has been attached to the subject um, that has been really brilliantly worked, um, that we are all still conditioned by to a degree, sort of the wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of factor of this, Mm -hmm. going back to the 1940s. Um, But up until Bud and a handful of other investigators started to turn their attention toward this missing time abduction phenomena, which... I am convinced is very much a reality. Most researchers were looking at the phenomena of lights in the night sky, of disc-shaped objects, of the occasional landing. But as a close colleague of Bud's, uh, Dr. David Jacobs, a professor of history at Temple University, also well-known in the work, said up until then, we were kind of concentrating our attention on the vehicles and not the drivers. Mm-hmm. and uh, basically recording license plates rather than, you mm-hmm. know, the, the people who, the beings that were responsible for um, these machines of obvious advanced technology. Um, over the years that I worked with Bud, I had the privilege, if that's the word for it, of meeting and spending time with certainly hundreds of individuals who were convinced that they had been through this phenomena and many of them with um, extraordinary evidences and supporting materials to uh, uh, support their accounts and their memories. In many cases, um, multiply witnessed um, events by people in their family or friends that might have been with them at a point where they had an experience like this. In other cases, either through um, X-ray or CAT scan, uh, a small object in their body that we couldn't account for that are generally called implants. In other cases, neighbors who remember the electricity going out in the neighborhood as a glowing light came over their house one night, et cetera, and so forth. Well, tell us tell us something about, I mean, you mentioned the evidence, and this is just, uh, there's so many questions I have. Yes. But you mentioned you talked to hundreds of people who... who claimed to have been abducted, and there was lots of evidence, some of it being, like you said, the, 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 the chip or the transponders being put into the bodies. What, what is the explanation for that, and what exactly is it that's been put into their bodies? Well, the objects themselves are small and simple. They usually um, have the general shape or appearance of something like a BB or a grain of rice. They're small. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no moving parts to speak of, um, and a number of them that have been recovered um, have been subjected to serious laboratory analysis. In fact, 
we lost another pioneer investigator in this, uh, sadly, uh, to a heart attack, Dr. Roger Lear, who was a podiatric surgeon who was really the first known individual within the respected medical community practiced in California to work with people like Hopkins and um, do the necessary procedure to recover these objects. Uh, Roger wrote several fine books on on the subject, one of which was um, The Aliens and the Scalpel. And one of the pieces of information that he was able to establish that is as fascinating as it is unnerving, if you or I, say, were to insert a foreign object into our or somebody else's body subcutaneously, make a surgical cut, you know, put it in a grain of rice or a BB or something like that, um, the body's defensive system, the white blood cells, would, you know, go to that area. It would create an infection, uh, heat. Um, it would it would be immediately something that was apparent yeah. uh, to the individual as well as any medical professional dealing with it. In the cases of these implants, what Roger established was they are coated with this incredibly thin, very, very super tough coating that makes them, in so many words, like stealth, like invisible to the body's defensive system. Now, we can only deduce um, what their purpose is, and I think we have a very limited number of choices here, either something um, that is a mechanism for tracking, like a little LOJAC, or um, a mechanism to um, control or to give the body messages or to collect information. Um, Otherwise, um, your guess is as good as mine. Have, have, do these exist once they've been taken out of, of Oh, yes. People? And where um, are they? They're, they're, well, they're held by different researchers, by individuals who have had them removed. Um, there are um, a few researchers, obviously, out there who have used them for source material in articles, in lectures, in, in documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember offhand... Um, but basically, they can't explain. The, 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 they can't explain exactly where they come from. They're otherworldly. Well, that's that's pretty much it. And um, I know how this sounds to somebody, say, just tuning in and thinking, "Oh boy, here's a far out one." <laughs> um, I've actually seen a um, an X-ray of the um, skull of an individual who seems to have had multiple lifelong events happening to them, and there is something in their brain. It is about the size of a BB. It's, say, you know, an inch down and two inches from the right. There is, it's, it's not natural. It's not a, um, a tumor. It's perfectly round. It um, does not seem to be causing any, um, you know, upset in the bioenergetic system of the individual. It's not um, registering an infection or what have you. It's just there. Mm-hmm. It's totally anomalous. It doesn't belong there. Um, often what we find statistically is they are inserted way up into the nasal cavity. And in a number of cases, they have actually been sneezed out. 
Hmm. Um, in the case of um, the witnessed um, case, uh, a case that um, Bud spent six years investigating that I actually assisted on straight through that period of time, we have a woman, um, a lifelong New Yorker, who um, this is the best case we have in the annals that I'm aware of. Okay. In late 1989, at about 2 in the morning, um, was observed by at least several dozen people who reported this to Hopkins over the time that followed, was observed literally being floated out through a plate glass window of the 12th floor of her apartment house, the top floor, and into a large glowing disc-shaped thing that then took off. Um, almost everybody that observed it thought that they were watching a film being made, because what else could they think? Right. Um, we received fascinatingly accurate drawings from people who had seen it from, uh, gosh, you know, around the loading dock areas of some of the big newspapers down on uh, the Lower East Side there, from a woman who was coming back from a late-night retirement party of a friend on the Brooklyn Bridge, from individual, uh, one individual from the, um, uh, the highway there. And um, what, again, these cases are assembled the same way that one tries to build um, a case in law enforcement. In fact, one of my other mentors was a great guy who died much too young named Pete Mazzola. Pete was a tough, no-nonsense, Italian-American, Brooklyn, New York City police detective, uh, highly decorated and also a very serious investigator of the UFO phenomena. Uh, he didn't make a secret of it in the NYPD. He obviously took a certain amount of ribbing from brother officers, but he did fine work, and he was the person who taught me to build an investigation in the same way one would... Um, um, pulling together evidence in a felony sure, case. Sure, a case, yeah, building your case. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm a very real-world person here. I don't get messages from Martians. I don't have some secret <laughs> contact at the NSA. You're looking at this through science. I, I Exactly, mm. exactly. I'm fairly plodding, methodical researcher, and yes, I do this in a very real-world manner. So when you mentioned that the, the woman was taken out of her apartment and floated away, did we ever see her again? Oh, yes. These people are literally always returned, and often these events take place in the bedroom at night where you are taken and where you are returned. But the locations vary wildly, uh, from automobiles to um, beaches to pretty much anywhere where you can imagine. Um, and this is a gal whose memories go back to childhood of events like this, and who has supporting evidences. And also, the, one of the things that we have found in doing this kind of work is if this has happened to you, it has happened, overwhelming likelihood is that it has happened to one of your parents, and that these other intelligences who are involved in taking, examining, and returning individuals seem to be following bloodlines, if you will. Um, Linda's mother um, had memories of little beings uh, in the bedroom. And, again, and Linda was the lady who was abducted from the apartment? Yes, indeed. Yeah, who I still stay in touch with. And um, so what, what did she see when she was abducted? Like, does she remember 
Oh, yes. Um, well, we're talking here in the case of um, uh, this type of event, of this archetypical being that has become known in popular culture as a gray, about four feet or so tall uh, at the tallest, um, rather emaciated body, uh, a very large cranial structure, very large, completely black eyes, only a hint of a nose or a mouth, um, beings that only communicate to the individuals being taken telepathically. And this is another thread that runs through all of these accounts. Whatever the language that the person speaks, they are hearing that language in their head. Hmm. So, so they get taken up uh, by the greys. Hmm. Are they, you know, you hear stories about they kind of end up in some kind of a operating room or something where there's a lot of white lights. Like, what are they, are they going onto the, 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 the spaceship and, and being probed, or what exactly well, happens? Well, um, once again, no matter how long I've worked in this field or how many people I have interviewed or worked with or sat with during hypnotic regression, we're still involved in a certain amount of educated speculation. Yes, it does seem that they have been taken on board um, a craft of some sort, um, or that that craft has transported them to another location where they are being examined. Um, interestingly, one of the things that is almost identical case to case, year to year, country to country, is the metal table, the shape and the configuration of the metal table that they are examined on, which is just a fascinating detail to me, and one more thing to mm -hmm. confirm the seriousness of such things. Um, examinations vary, or tests, if you want to call it that, conducted vary. Um, it was speculated, you know, years ago that we human beings were being experimented on, was the phrase, the euphemism. And at this point, I think most of the serious people in the work all agree that this is no longer an accurate way to put it. There is some kind of program ongoing on their part mm -hmm. that involves, you know, a certain percentage of the human race. And experimenting doesn't really have anything to do with it. Um, where we are in this program is speculative. It may be coming to an end or coming to a new phase or something. But for me, it is fascinating, it is disturbing, it is tremendously important, and it may be part of the key to understanding whatever relationship there exists with these other intelligences and maybe signaling something about the future of the human race or our life here on Earth and whether it's going to be continuing pretty much as it has been or we are going to be sharing openly, you know, this uh, territory with others mm -hmm. who, um, you know, are still speculative in nature. Well, I mean, it's amazing to me, and that's why I've always had an open mind to all these things. I mean, the yeah. galaxy is, is massive. It's huge. And for yeah. us to think we're the only living, you know, breathing, intelligent yes. creatures that in the universe. intellectual arrogance. Very arrogant. Stuff. Exactly. Very arrogant. Now, we, we mentioned earlier about the little, uh, the little the device that's been planted. What exactly yes. is that device for? Well, once again... Um, I, I would be completely irresponsible to say what it's for. Cause, in your opinion, though? Yeah, in my opinion, it can only be for one of several reasons, and we're kind of limited in that. 
One is a tracking device to um, be able to locate an individual if one wants to. Uh, another is that it may in some way be a controlling device um, that you can, you know, um, used to make a person behave in a certain way or not. Mm-hmm. The other is it may be an information collector of some sort. Beyond those three possibilities, I'm not sure what else it could be. It's almost like tagging a deer in the, yes. in the, in the wilderness. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's a very fair way to look at it. And in fact, that is the way that I've tended to look at it. And let's let's just say that um, you know you and I, Chris, we were you weren't on the radio. I wasn't doing the work I'm doing, but we had become research biologists specializing in mammals in North America, mm-hmm. and we had just been, you know, flown in by um, seaplane to some really remote wilderness area up by Hudson's Bay in Canada to study a certain kind of otter. Right, and you know we love animals. Um, but we're, our job here is we've got to catch them in humane traps. Once we do, you know, we take them out. The animal is in total shock, but I'm petting it and saying, don't worry, we won't hurt you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you're giving it a, a shot with some kind of vitamins or something, and the animal is feeling pain, getting a very double message. Mm-hmm. Um, I am now putting a radio collar around its neck. You're spraying a number on its back. It's totally disoriented. It wanders back to the otter population and says in so many words, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. And they're looking at him like he's out of his mind. Um, And, gee, you really do seem disoriented, and what's that weird thing around your neck as opposed to that mark on your arm? Mm -hmm. I think we may be dealing with a similar phenomena. And, in fact, their relationship with us, Chris, may go beyond, you know, what we would call good or evil or right or wrong or, you know, um, bad or not. the same relationship, perhaps, although one would like to think it's more ethereal, um, that perhaps that we have with our laboratory animals, that yeah. we don't love you, we don't hate you, we're trying to treat you well enough while we do experiments that may kill you, and we're sorry about that. Yes. But as we say in the mafia, it's nothing personal, it's just business. i got to put this cancer tumor on your back, and I, you know, I hope you're not in pain. Or, you know, your life has just been extended by, you know, three times because of this amazing new miracle drug we're testing on you and hope works on people. Yeah, and that's the thing. That That's the, the, the creepy thing to think that we could just be akin to cattle right. to a, a race that's a hundred times smarter than us and yes. more advanced than us. Has there Absolutely been... Absolutely t- possible. I mean, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is people have been taken away and they're gently placed back. And yes. has there ever been cases where something... You know, evil has happened or painful has happened, or is it more just studying at this point? Overwhelmingly, it's the latter, just studying. Yeah. It. There, um, uh, people's reactions are really the, um, the thing that sort of divides the field. And mm-hmm. interestingly, I'm, I'm working on a, a paper on that right now, that some people historically have these experiences and report, you know, uh, if they are... Um, go speaking about it in public or do let people know that overall the experience was an enlightening one, a beneficial Mm -hmm, one, one where they felt a deep sense of contact with these other intelligences, where at least as often people are um, very upset, completely freaked out, um, um, 
do get double messages in terms of, you know, the voice in their head saying, we love you, you're special, we won't hurt you, while they're in pain on the table. Mm. Um, and then they're sort of doubly damned, because if they do go forward, the public at large will, to put it mildly, question their account or make fun of them or say, you know, you just want to feel special or you're mentally ill or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear this, and where do we go to find out more information on, on this crazy what is subject? Happening. Right, right. We're getting all that information right now from Peter Robbins, one of the most knowledgeable uh, people in the entire world about the UFO phenomenon. We'll be right back with more Talk is Jericho right after this. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. Peter Robbins is here. UFO phenomena. Not necessarily an expert, but knows a lot more on the subject than I do. Peter, have you ever seen a UFO? Have you ever had a sighting? I have. Um, the thing that got me interested in the subject initially, but uh, with a great separation of time, was my sister Helen and I had a sighting growing up on Long Island, New York, when I was 14 and she was just 12. And there was nothing ambiguous about it. It was a daylight sighting, and we observed no less than it was five silvery white disc-shaped objects, uh, metallic, in a very precise V-type formation that Mm. came in in a clear blue sky um, at a very high rate of speed and then stopped um, right over where we were. Mm. And we watched them for a prolonged period of time, it was very upsetting to me. As a 14-year-old, all I wanted was, you know, to be with the cool kids and mm-hmm. have a girlfriend and, you right. know, just be like any adolescent, uh, accepted and, you know, part of a peer group. And mm-hmm. I knew intuitively that, you know, the adult world knew said that this was nonsense. It was fine in, you know, the movies um, that I was seeing in the theater that, you know, were fun and goofy, um, but that in reality, nothing had prepared me for this possibility. And to this day, I uh, now remember, you know, looking and straining my mind to try to figure out what they could be other than what they looked like. They were completely anomalous. They had no appendages, wings, tails, whatever. Um, They were metallic. They had regular detailing around the edge that we saw that we could only read as windows, and it quite blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And it became probably the, if not the only, truly repressed memory of my adolescence. I didn't want this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just didn't want to think of the implications, and I did put it out of my mind. And we didn't talk about it for many years until that memory came roaring back to me in my late 20s. And then my life changed, and I, I became very involved in investigating this subject. I also had um, a profound multiple sighting in February of 1988 in Suffolk, England, where I had traveled uh, with my then future co-author of a book that became a bestseller in England Mm -hmm. called Left at East Gate. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Um, And we had a multiple UFO sighting 
only miles from where he had had um, been involved as a, an Air Force security specialist uh, about eight years before in what is now regarded as a very famous UFO incident. Um, like everybody, or like many people, there have been a handful of moments where I've looked up in the sky and seen something that I really can't identify and don't know, you know what to think of it. But those two occasions, yes, they were profoundly um, uh, memorable and both which, quite life-changing. Which influenced, yeah, exactly, your entire future. Now, you mentioned Left at Eastgate. Yes. Tell us tell us the whole story about Left at Eastgate. I mean, obviously, uh, everybody knows Roswell, and everybody knows all the rumors and, and the surrounding. I mean, and to me, I'm pretty much convinced, as I'm sure you even have evidence of it, that the government covers up a lot of different things oh, yes. that they don't want us to know or need us to know. Tell us about the, the, the Eastgate uh, cover-up, if you will. Well, um, in a nutshell, um, in late December of 1980, over the course of three consecutive nights, um, a number of events occurred in and around an area um, called Suffolk, East Anglia, um, the Rendlesham Forest, which is there, and um, two large um, NATO bases, one an American base, one a British base, sister bases, so to say, RAF Woodbridge and RAF Bentwaters, about five or six miles from each other. Right. And the events in question um, spanned the gamut from these unknowns coming in over the weapons storage area, and that's a nuclear weapons storage area, shining beams of light down into that area, which somehow, uh, and this is something that has happened more than most people would be comfortable with um, and is now well recorded in the literature, um, in the words of the former deputy base commander, and this is something he told Larry, my Larry Warren, my co-author, mm-hmm. and I to our faces years ago when we met with him uh, in Washington, was um, they adversely affected the ordinance. They messed with the um, uh, operational aspects of this nuclear ordinance. And mm. again, we have a long history of this kind of thing happening. Um, we also, that first night, um, a um, law enforcement, Air Force policeman, observed a light go down into the woods. It didn't indicate a crash because there was no ground concussion, no fire, no explosion. But this was a very loaded point in the Cold War, and it needed to be investigated. This is a highly secured area. And so he and a, another law enforcement uh, personnel went out into the woods and they came upon a uh, machine of undetermined origin, uh, maybe seven feet or so across, triangular in nature. The two of them have missing time, don't remember all of what happened when they encountered it. Explain missing time briefly. It's kind of just big yeah. chunks of time where you don't remember what happened? Well, quite simply, yeah. In, um, you Let's say you're driving, and um, it's... Uh, 1030. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you look at your watch wow. and it's um, uh, 12 o'clock at night, 90 minutes are wow. gone. You're in another location. You don't remember anything about how you got there. The last thing you remember was checking your watch and it was 1030. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, you're 40 miles away. And um, yeah, yeah, this kind of phenomena is part of this abduction um, 
phenomena. I had I had that once, and I'm not even I'm not even joking. I had it back in '91. I was driving home from my friend's house out in uh, kind of rural Alberta, Canada, and I had missing time for about 90 minutes. Mm. Completely remember it to this day. So that's why I kind of assume that's what it was. But I'm, I'm a victim of missing time. So well, I, I'm certainly not saying here that this is the only thing that may account for it. That would be naive and um, kind of intellectually arrogant. Mm-hmm. But it is a phenomena that is highly associated with this abduction sure. situation. of course. Also, over the next few nights, um, UFOs were seen in the skies over the Twin Base complex. There is no question that a number of them came in through the forest, ripping out, in some cases, parts of forest canopy, tearing bark off of trees, landing, leaving impressions in the soil. In the case of one that was documented on the third night, uh, plaster casts were taken, and there were readings uh, taken with the Geiger counter from these impressions and from parts of the uh, trees where they had made contact, where you had in excess of 10 times the background count of beta and gamma radiation readings. Now, these are infinitesimal to start with, wow. um, but there is no question that it was in excess of 10 times in these affected areas, and that is a stat from um, the Ministry of Defense, not from me. So spacecraft were landing in the, in the forest surrounding the base. Well, it seems so. Right. And on the third night, among other things, uh, my co-author was caught up in arguably the most dramatic encounter where um, men were brought out to this area, taken off of their, po- their, their guard posts that night, and told to head in, broken up into three-man teams and headed into the forest to quote-unquote, investigate a disturbance, they came upon nothing less than a self-contained, self-illuminated ground fog, um, grayish-yellow, and again, self-contained in like a very large oval, maybe 30 feet across, uh, were ordered to surround it, which they did. And after a time, uh, the men observed a reddish light coming in over the area from the direction of the North Sea, It came in directly over the area that they had been ordered to surround. And then without a sound, but with magnesium-like brightness, exploded in shards of light, temporarily blinding the individuals who were looking at it. And in fact, burning the retinas of, I'm sure, many of the men's eyes. We can document that it happened to my co-author because we have the Air Force Medical forms noting the optical retinal burns to his eyes and as you know eyes adjusted sitting in that fog was now another kind of machine of undetermined origin and ultimately the appearance of three life forms and um when it when all is said and done um when we went back to that spot eight years later and then I returned a year and a half after that, it was obvious that there was a discoloration in the soil mm-hmm. um, right on, not near the spot, but on the exact spot that Larry had located for me months earlier on two different maps, very important detail, before we had ever gotten there. And on the second time I returned there, um, it was now June rather than uh, wintertime, and the spot was demarcated 
by the ellipse being bright green and the rest of the field having already gone to hay and been yellow. Um, I went mm. back again and took probably close to 20 pounds of soil, which um, was packed up according to the directions of the laboratory that did the analysis in Massachusetts. And I took soil from, we'll call it the affected area, mm-hmm. from the edge of that area, and then a series of random control samples from out in the field. Among other things, the test results showed us that um, the affected area had been um, something had happened to it to make it literally unable to reconstitute with water to form mud. Uh, the pH was literally blown out of it, and even when you worked it like an apothecary, it either floated like dust on the top of the water or sunk in clumps to the bottom. Um, that it looked different, no question about that. It was very abnormal then. Yes, very abnormal. Um, That the soil in that area had like sand-sized flecks of um, metallic particles, which sometimes is the case in soil, and that in the control samples it was totally normal to that part of England. In the affected sample, it was in excess of four times the amount in the control samples, indicating a very powerful electromagnetic effect had exerted itself on that spot. More, when they did seed germination tests with the control samples, the seedlings Mm -hmm. um, grew at a normal rate in a normal fashion. When they did it with the affected soil, um, it took much longer for the seeds to grow, and the results were always mutant forms of the seeds of the plants that they grew. Perhaps the most dramatic effect, though, Chris, was, again, this happened in an area that was five or six miles from the coast, and so one would expect to find a certain amount of sand in the soil, which Mm -hmm. we did in the control samples. In the affected sample, it wasn't sand anymore. The laboratory analyst um, terminology for it was it was in an interim form of glass. The sand had melted. under that area where the thing had sat. And to this day, again, you combine this with the maps that I referred to earlier that Larry had given me on two occasions, one that I saw him draw, one that he gave me with the area marked off from years before, with witness accounts, with voice stress analysis of the audio tapes of him originally reacting when we first came into that area in February of 88, and you overlay them, you triangulate them, as yeah. we say, in investigation, and you have undisputable evidence that something extraordinary happened on that spot, uh, the kind of evidence that if things like this were adjudicated in courts of law, could put somebody in jail for a very long time or set them free. Yes. So, but, so, so when you go there uh, to ask about this, something tells me that it's all denied and, and covered up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and the British government maintained for many years that whatever happened out there was of no defense significance. Now, that is enough to um, enrage local people who are now aware, through Larry and I, that in 1980 when this happened, there was not just nuclear ordnance on that base, but the largest backline amount of nuclear ordnance anywhere in the NATO theater. And completely in violation of our treaty, our, the United States Treaty, with the U.K. at the time, which caused, uh, needless to say, quite a, uh, a sensation and not a good one 
uh, at the time. But yes, um, this was of major defense significance. And in fact, just a month ago, I returned to the area again with my co-author and with the film crew for a program that is in production right now. And for the first time in all the years that I have been studying this particular case, now a quarter of a century, we were able to get into the old nuclear weapons storage area Hmm. and really relive this thing in a way that was absolutely chilling. Um, This story continues on. There's yet another book on it about to be published, and I'm sure that will cause another round of examination and uh, debate and questioning about this. But the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident is about as important a UFO event as we have, and as Larry has said, this one is never going away. This one could be the one to crack it open if we had, you know, representatives, uh, elected representatives who had the courage to tackle such things, which is well, anything but. And, and why why the cover-up then? Is it just too much information that for us to know about? Or just well, because... that's a great question, um, and there are a number of realistic answers for it. Um, one is that... Um, the cover-up, which is a real thing and has been in place since arguably the Truman administration, if, you know, world leaders were to come forward right now and say, in coordination, because we're not at a time when a president of the United States or any single leader could come forward and reveal this. They would all have to coordinate mm-hmm. it together. Responsibility. Yeah. But if they were to say, let's say Barack Obama comes forward and says, ladies and gentlemen, it's my solemn duty to inform you that the United States government, military intelligence community have been aware since the summer of 1947 that we are not alone in the universe and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It would mean by implication that he was saying that every administration, Republican, Democrat, left, right, since and including the Truman administration, was an unindicted co-conspirator That's right. in the greatest cover-up of all time. Now, I don't know any political leader that wants to take responsibility for that. Great point. Going Great. on from there, um, um, this thing that's always been put forward, even since um, uh, the gra- and what's been used as, as uh, an argument is quite wonderful. It's the wonderful Mercury Theater of the Air, Orson Welles' treatment of the H.G. Wells story of War of the Worlds. Right. That was um, broadcast on October 30th, 1938, right at the edge of World War II, which is now put forward as, gee, if it would happen in something like that, we've got to always look at the mass fear of panic, uh, fear of mass panic. Um, Then there is the argument that it would melt down religious communities and there'd be a crisis of faith. Mm. Then there's the argument that after, you know, 68 years or whatever long it's been now, we don't know much and that... We're embarrassed to say that, so that's another reason for the cover-up. Or we do know a certain amount, and we don't know what to do about it. We don't have any way of stopping these things. We don't know whether they're bad or good or right or wrong, or whether they're here to help us or hurt us. And that is a very, very embarrassing thing for military Mm -hmm. and you know, power, uh, elite pride. That sense of, of helplessness, yeah, uh, especially exactly. in the American. Yeah. So it's you mentioned too human. You mentioned the, uh, the, the summer of 47. That's the Roswell incident. That is the Roswell incident. And a week before that to kind of kick it off what we call, um, the Kenneth Arnold incident, Kenneth Arnold being a respected private businessman and pilot who observed what we'll now call, um, you know, the first official flying saucer observations 
in the Cascade Mountain Range um, of Washington State and was able to calculate their speed by seeing them travel between, um, like Mount Rainier and mm-hmm. another mountain mm-hmm. peak, and do the math and clock them in, seven, eight, nine of them, whatever, at like 1,800 miles an hour wow. in um, June 24th of 1947, when we didn't have anything that went that speed. Um, there was a plane that had gone down, and so there were reporters at the airport that he landed at because there were folks up looking for the down plane. And so that story kind of, well, we'd say now, went viral on the, uh, the mm-hmm. wire services and went around the world. And apparently it was about a week and a half later that something went down, or two things, and the plains of St. Augustine, uh, 60 or so miles from the then town of Roswell, New Mexico, right. now a city. And, and, the, and the rumor always was, well, at least amongst the uneducated UFO aficionados like myself, is that that, air, uh, that spacecraft and, and so many others reside in Area 51. What exactly is Area 51? Well, Area 51 is a, um, a huge area um, in Nevada. Um, it is larger than the country of the Netherlands. Wow. Yes, it's massive. Um, I've been as close to it as you can get without putting yourself into... Uh, is it underground? Well, it's. I'm sure, of course, sure. there are parts of it that are, are below the surface, but it is... Um, part of a, a huge, huge contained area of um, I don't know how many acres that was expanded under um, the Clinton administration so that you could not go up to a certain higher location and look down into it. Um, we know for a fact that it is a real facility and that at the least it has been at the vanguard of locations for research, development, and testing of our most advanced aircraft. And that would include, in their time, um, the U-2 spy plane, Mm -hmm. the beautiful SR-71, which took over those responsibilities um, years afterwards and was retired some years ago, and probably the place where they refined and developed whatever has taken over for the SR, the Blackbird, which is euphemistically known as the Aurora. It's also where our stealth aircraft were, you know, uh, tested. Designed and tested. Now, it is part of the rumor, mythology, legend of Area 51 that it is where we have back-engineered, um, crashed or recovered truly anomalous UFOs, and that may be true. Um, or where we hold uh, the remains of, you know, recovered craft from parts unknown. Hmm. Uh, again, there will be, there are people and colleagues of mine who will tell you that's an absolute truth. I can't do that because I don't know for sure, yeah. but it may well be the case. Do you think that, like, I've always thought about this, like when a president gets elected, let's say Obama, or you mentioned Clinton or, or any of the presidents that have been around over the last 60, mm-hmm. 70 years, when you get kind of, uh, you know, uh, you get you get admitted in there and you, you know, you get, uh, you're now officially the president of the United States, they take you into a little room and then say, okay, hey, here's all the secrets about UFOs, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think the presidents know all of these secrets? You know, Chris, I, I've often had that thought, too, especially <laughs> early on in my uh, involvement in this field. Um, I've come to feel that 
different presidents have been briefed in different manners and to different degrees mm-hmm. based on the the opinion of let's call them the keepers of the secrets those little gray Mm-hmm. Men whose names we will never know who are not elected but appointed from mm-hmm. generation to a generation. They're parts of the intelligence community. They're parts of the military. They're parts probably now certainly of the um, major uh, multinational corporate world. And those are the ones who really know what's going on to whatever degree they can. But I would bet, for example, again, this started under Truman. He probably knew as much as any president could. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was inherited by Eisenhower, um, highly regarded by the military and intelligence communities overall. Uh, again, a commanding general of World War II. Eisenhower probably knew as much as anyone knew. Kennedy, on the other hand, um, um, revealed during his administration by not going in and uh, making the Bay of Pigs um, fiasco Mm -hmm. um, a takeover or an invasion of Cuba, which got him the enmity of our intelligence community and, to a degree, the military community. Um, He may have not been told much, but as the scion of a very wealthy and powerful American family, as the son of a former ambassador to England, and even though... He is best known for his World War service, World War II service as the captain of a PT boat. John Kennedy may well have had um, a place in naval intelligence who would likely have been in the know. Mm-hmm. So he may well have known more than they wanted him to know. Now, Johnson, who knows what he knew? Um, <laughs> from there, we go to um, uh, Nixon, who probably was quite well briefed. Uh, as a team player, as the longtime vice president of um, a uh, you know uh, of Eisenhower, who right. was probably well briefed, Ford was best known relative to UFOs in the early seventies for having the courage to uh, late sixties to push for a congressional investigation based on um, uh, observations and insistence of his constituents, who had many of them that he'd known since childhood at a time when um, his home district in Michigan was getting a tremendous amount of um, UFO sightings, uh, many of them confirmed by uh, police officers. Mm-hmm. Once he became president, we never heard another word from him. Um, mm. After him, we had Carter, who uh, we all know, uh, many of us know, had had a famous UFO sighting right. while campaigning for governor and took it very seriously then, then backpedaled tremendously, uh, after he tried initially mm. to find out what was going on, and so on and so on. Right. Um, so that my general feeling is that what any president is told is, Mr. President, once again, it's my solemn duty to inform you that we're not alone, this is the most highly classified secret, you know, in post-war years, and that we can only advise you to pray to God that it doesn't blow up in your administration because <laughs> you don't want to handle this. That's so right. So if you're curious, that's nice, but we advise you to keep it private, and, um, yes. you know, that's all that she wrote about that. I, I think it's different from president to president, Chris, sure. the way that uh, it is dealt with. Well, Peter, we've been talking about a lot of uh, amazing things today, and I'm sure you know some people are, are believing, some people are interested, and some <laughs> people think it's complete hoo-ha. Yep. Why do we need to take UFOs seriously, and why do we need to take this conversation seriously? Yeah. Well, if what many of us feel after um, 
extended investigation, uh, serious research, um, studies of um, things that have been shot in space, uh, officially by NASA, and have come down to us um, by thousands of pages of declassified military and intelligence documents, we are not alone. And for some of the reasons we have discussed at the least, this fact, and it is a fact, has been kept from us. Are they good? Are they bad? Do they mean us well? Are they hostile? Are they from other solar systems, galaxies, planets? Are they from other dimensions? Maybe all the above. I don't know. But I do know that if we human beings understood and appreciated the basic fact that we're not alone, maybe one of the results that might not be in the interests of world governments, uh, at least on the surface, that we might begin to think of ourselves first as human beings, sharing this fragile little planet, Mm. which we have overpopulated, toxified to the point of parts of it beginning to really be in very serious risk um, of losing their ability to ultimately sustain life. We are on the edge of poisoning our water sources. With our nuclear spent fuel, we are on the edge, and let's just say there's a major earthquake in an area where fuel rods are stored. Mm -hmm. Um, We are really at a turning point in where we go with our home planet here. And if we understood that we are, there are other highly advanced life forms and that it does not end with, you know, human beings as the top of the cosmic mm. food chain, so to say, despite what our religious beliefs are or what our, you know, religious books tell us, that we may be somebody's graduate school experiment that has gone very wrong. We may be um, related in some way to these other intelligences. Um, We may be um, needing them, and they may be needing us. But if we did begin to think of ourselves as human beings first, and not necessarily as, you know, Americans, Canadians, French people, Indians, South Africans, whatever, Mm -hmm. or Christians, or Muslims, or Hindus, or Buddhists, or Jews, or even men or women, Mm -hmm. but again, thought of ourselves as human beings first, it might create a moment in our evolution where we might take some more responsibility for what we have done here and try in every way possible to turn it around and have a hope Mm -hmm. for the future, which we are fast, I think... um, Um, racing through Mm -hmm. and hurting with our continued lack of responsibility for what we are doing on this planet and to this planet and fracturing the nature of our relationship with all of our brothers and sisters around the world by dividing ourselves into a small Mm -hmm. but all-powerful ruling elite and a world of serfs, um, which is what the rest of us are heading for if we continue in the directions that we're going. That is one reason why we really might want to take this subject seriously.
we're not alone, and mm-hmm. we need to accept that and get used to it and see where we go from here. Peter, such a, a great conversation. Lots to think about. So many uh, open-ended possibilities yes. uh, of close encounters, and we are not alone. Peter Robbins, one of the world's smartest men when it comes to UFO phenomenon. Thanks for joining us today, my friend. Well, you bet, Chris, and I look forward to a revisit to your show in future. Absolutely. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. You bet. <laughs> Thanks so much to UFO expert Peter Robbins. Some of those stories... Uh, goosebumps, man. They made my skin crawl. Absolutely. Uh, thanks to listening uh, for, to the show. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for checking out the new Fozzie record. Do you want to start a war? We debuted at number 54 on the Billboard Top 200 album chart. Huge for Fozzie. It's a victory for all of us. Thank you so much. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Go pick it up. And you can do it when you do your online shopping through my Amazon link. Totally helps out the show. Totally helps out Fozzie. Totally helps out me. Really easy to find. Just go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast Free banner at the top of the page. Then click on Talk is Jericho. You'll see all three of my Amazon links. Amazon Canada, Amazon UK, and everybody's going Amazon. Amazon USA. Yeah. Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can keep doing this for you for free for a week. No extra fees or hidden charges. You're just getting your shopping done and you're helping me out in the process. Go check it out. Do the right thing, man. All right. That's it. Another fun-filled edition of Talk is Jericho. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. And we'll see you next week. All right. And yeah, boy. Do it right now. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcast. Podcastone.com.